Let's drop the green flag on this episode of The Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. Hey, it's Wyatt. Yes, asking for your help. If you like the show and enjoy the content, please hit the five-star rating on Apple Podcast or on Stitcher. Please consider writing a quick review on the Talent Tank Facebook page, on YouTube, and absolutely on Apple Podcast. And consider joining the discussions in the Talent Tank Insiders group on Facebook. All right, let's get to it. Welcome back. The Talent Tank, another episode. We're getting loaded up here. As you clicked on today and downloaded, we've got the guy who's described as the man behind Ultra 4 Europe. We've got Chris Bowler. He's sitting in a car in Poland before the Poland U4 race, the Ultra 4 race in, in Poland, Europe. He's he's just a hardworking badass. He's the guy that Ultra 4 Europe would not happen if it wasn't for him. He's humble. He never takes credit for anything. I don't know him very well. I know a lot of people here in the stateside do not know him very well, but here we are. We've got him. We've got him in the tank, so let's go. Chris, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm really good. Weather's uh, not particularly uh, the best out here in comparison to some of the weathers we've worked in. But uh, no, you're right. I'm sat in a Skoda. It's a lovely gray colored car. And uh, I'm looking forward to a really cool interview. All right. Well, we might as well just roll into this. You know, I'm going to, you know, set the hook here kind of early. Who builds a better course? You or JT Taylor? (laughs) Well, of course, it's me in Europe. (laughs) JT is real badass man. I mean, I've I've known him for probably about uh, four or five years, and we first met on one of my first Ultra Four Europe events. Didn't really know him, what he was, what he did. I just treated him with the respect that you treat everybody that you've never met before, and we just hit it off straight away. And that is quite a common joke about who who does the better course. Yeah, in Europe, it's me. End of. I believe you. I absolutely believe you. I've heard, uh, you know, everything from the stock guys to uh, the 4400s over there. It's hard to build a course. You know, I mean, you can't build a course in Europe like you can here in the States. Certainly it can't compare to something like Johnson Valley. But to build a course where you're at within the confines of not public land, all private land, and getting the terrain that is challenging enough for a 4400 car in Europe, but still doable by a stock car or a 4500 or a 4800 car, is very, very, gosh, I, I, I don't envy the shoes that you're in. You're right. It, it is a completely different kettle of fish. And, of course, in America, you take Johnson Valley, for example, each day of competition, you're expecting, uh, you know, only certain, you know, classes to compete. Whereas here in Europe, our races take place over a two-day period, and we don't have the time or the real estate to run a dedicated UTV race or a dedicated 4400 race. So, for example, here in Poland this weekend, we will have stock, modified, legend and 4400 all racing at the same time on the same course. And then the next heat will be a UTV race. So when you're building a course, you're having to think about the capabilities of four different cars at each point on the course. And yeah, that, that's, that's pretty hard. And you want to be fair to the drivers. You don't want to limit the stock class. They're my favorite class by without a shadow of a doubt, because they're the guys, the entry level, 
They're the guys with the limited budgets, the limited capability vehicles, but they're in it to win it just as much as the top 4,400 class car. So you want to be able to give everybody a course that they can use their imagination within the rules of the way you've laid the course and still feel like they are the top of the tree. Now I know why everyone told me that we needed to have you on the talent tank and get you on record because I can hear the passion in your voice for what you do. It's it's amazing. It's just inspiring. Chris, we'll dive into you. We, we're going to talk about some race stuff down the road here, but let's talk about, you know, who Chris Bowler is. I know you're a, you know, you're a Wales guy. You're from the UK. That's correct. I'm, I'm, <laughs> this is going to be a good little line here, actually, because I'm from the United Kingdom. And I grew up in England, so technically I'm English. Um, about 18 years ago, my wife and I bought a farm, a sheep farm in Wales. So does that make me Welsh? No, because it makes me an Englishman who lives in Wales. And Wales is technically a different country. So you sort of have to then accept the fact that you're a foreigner in your own hometown. But I've lived there long enough that I know the locals, they know me. And again, you know, we're all on this planet to live together. There's a bit of banter, oh, the Englishman, the foreigner, all the rest of it. But that's the unusual thing about, about the United Kingdom is that I'm English, but I live in Wales. But I can't speak Welsh. Which this is a question, you know, this is maybe something you would identify with is Wales is on the west coast of the, the you know, Great Britain Island. Does that, make, does that make you west coast? Or are you like, you guys have like flat billers and, and black socks that you pull up on that over there on that side of the country? Is <laughs> Well, the west coast of the of Great Britain or the United Kingdom is technically the wettest side of the country because we get the weathers coming in from the Atlantic. And uh, so Wales is considered as as wet, rainy. So I suppose we'd be wearing waterproofs, whereas people on the east side would be more in the sun and having the better weather. So opposite way around to America, maybe. Maybe, maybe. But there, <laughs> no one in London is wanting like the Welsh side to like fall off into the, the ocean, are they? No, not at all. I mean, Wales is a totally different terrain as a country goes. There's a lot of beautiful places there. Um, the towns and villages are a lot smaller. Um, I think Cardiff is the largest. Well, it is the only city in Wales, but it's it's not a particularly big if you compare it to Birmingham or London. But if you look at the population in Wales, we're thinly spread over a nice country. So, for example, my hometown, there's probably eight to ten thousand people live in the Lampeter area. So, you know, we're sort of spread out rather than in England where you're a lot of people living in a smaller area. I gotcha. So you, uh, you, you're in Lampeter. Is that, did I pronounce that correctly? Um, yeah. If you pronounce it Lampeter and then say it quickly, Lampeter, that would work. Okay. And you guys have a pretty good sized farm there. And this is what shocked me. I thought, you know, farms here in the States are, you can get very large. I'm here in Texas and we have ranches, but you have nearly 90 acres of land there in uh, the Wales countryside. That's right. Yeah, we got an eight. We're an eighty-eight acre sheep farm. The farm is probably about four miles away from the town, so it's close enough to get a takeaway, and the takeaway is still hot by the time you get home. But it's far enough away that I can have an argument with my wife in the fields, and nobody else can hear what we're saying. Um, it's nice not to have neighbours because having lived in the military, you're constantly under, you know, wherever everybody is. And that was one of the reasons we bought the place. So we wanted a place that was peace and quiet. My wife, Judith, is into horses. She loves animals and we've got dogs. And I love building and racing Land Rovers. So we bought an 80-acre sheep farm thinking this is our place where we can make our hobbies come true. Um, but sadly, the reality of life is that you've got to earn money. So I turned my hobby into my business. 
Uh, and my wife works locally and she run, runs the farm with sheep and cattle um, also to bring money in. So, yeah, cool, cool place. What makes you say step back and say, you know what, I'm going to be a sheep farmer? <laughs> How do you get there? Like I grew up on a farm myself. I'm a big cattle farm uh, in Kansas. We don't, you know, we have enough acreage. I think if it was in Texas, you would call it a ranch, but it's, you know, we, we don't call them ranches in Kansas. We, they're, they're farms. And I moved from there and I live in, you know, suburban America now and got out of the, the ag lifestyle, got off the farm, but you went to the farm and don't get me wrong. I want at some point in my life, I would love to go back to the farm. Walk me through your, your and Judith, uh, your wife's plan and mindset and how you decided to say, you know what, we're going to be sheep farmers. And then I know you have two boys that you had highly involved in that. So don't let me skip over those guys. Well, probably going to have to go step back a little bit in terms of the history of, of where I came from. I, I joined the military. Uh, I was a, uh, an officer in the British Army and I did 18 years in the military. And I reached a point in my life and probably in my career where actually I no longer saw myself as being what we call a career soldier. So, you know, going on until 55 or even 60. And that happened when I was about 34, 35. And both Judith and I realized that in the military, you either aspire to go all the way up the ranks or you accept that you stop at a certain point and you either tread water and you just live with the fact that you're never going to get promoted again or you leave. And I decided that at a rank of a major, um, I'd done my stuff, I'd done my time, and it was probably time to have a bit of family time. Now, all the time that I lived in the military, my wife and my children, wherever I moved, they had to come with me. And sometimes I moved every two years and sometimes I moved every six months. And that was pretty tough on family life. Judith struggled to find a job without having to say, look, I might be gone in six months time or I might be here in two months, in two years time. And the boys were, well, they were born while I was in the military and they were five when I left the military. So in those first five years, they were dragged from pillar to post as we moved around the country. And that effect on private life was a main driver for saying we need to relocate to a base. If it means I've got to leave the army, so be it. But we will leave, make the, the, the secure part of our life for the wife and the, and the children rather than for the husband. So my last five years in the army, I did the traveling to the job and the family stayed at the farm. So the farm become the perfect base for them to have everything they need. The horses, the dogs, the school. Uh, my wife pursued with her career. My boys, funnily enough, and we come back to the Welsh conversation. My boys went to their first Welsh school and had to learn Welsh as their primary language. And at six years old, fair play, hats off, to go and be dumped into a foreign language not having spoken a word of it. And within a year, they could talk and talk back just as good as the rest of them. And they learned a language in a year and were learning it at school. Um, so it, it meant that I had stability in family life. And then I did the driving, you know, and was two or three hours away to the three jobs in those last five years. Does that make sense? Oh, no, absolutely. So for your boys, are, are they considered Welsh? <laughs> Here's another cool one. I've got two boys, Stuart and David, twins, so they're the same age. Nobody on this planet but my wife knows who came first. So as far as we're concerned, they're the same age. Stuart is a lot more open-minded, and he sees living in Wales as actually quite a cool thing. David, my other son, he tends to favour England. He likes the England rugby team and would cheer them on rather than the Welsh rugby team. Um, but he was the one that 
took the language better and was actually more capable, more able and more willing to speak to the locals. So I think between the two of them, they evened themselves out, but they thoroughly enjoyed living on the farm, living in Wales. It was a new challenge to start with. And then once they'd lived there longer than anywhere else, it became the norm. Now you're from Arborfield, just outside, just to the west of, of London. The drive from Arborfield to where you guys are in Lampeter, that's not that far. Um, it's about a four hour drive on, on a good day. And in England, that's, yeah, you're right. It isn't, it isn't a million miles. I think it's about 160 miles. But in, in the US, four hour drive is down the road. <laughs> right, right. No, absolutely. It's, it seems close. And, um, you know, don't let me, don't, don't let me downplay, uh, you know, the, how condensed and compact you guys are on, uh, on, on the island. I mean, it is a very big island, but that said, it's still, still an island. So when, when you were, I'm going to, I'm going to jump all the way back. So we've kind of talked about your, your family a little bit, but let's go back to you. You grew up in a, something of a rural town, Arborfield. How were you as a kid? And I know at that point, you know, once you got to high school, you went to college right there, you know, a couple miles up the road from, uh, from where you grew up. Let's talk about you as a kid. Have you always been an outdoorsy guy? Have you always been a, have you always been just so intellectually on top of things and on top of your game as you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up, I grew up with my, obviously with my parents, mum and dad. Um, my dad had a business, believe it or not, importing tropical fish from all over the world. He was the first guy to work out how to ship uh, tropical fish. And we're talking neons, guppies, uh, koi carp, uh, marine fish, pretty much anything that somebody would have as a hobby in their house. My dad worked out how to ship those fish from all over the world, the Amazon, from China, from the Far East, back into UK, and then grow them and then store them ready to ship to, to people's homes. So my dad had an outdoor job anyway, and we had a fairly sort of sizable garden um i was an outdoor guy for sure um i had to cycle to school two miles each way so that was outdoors and sometimes when the winter's down in england it's it's pretty wet and you're on your push bike so yeah i i think you you've hit the nail on the head i was an outdoor guy from an intellectual point of view i wouldn't say i was the sharpest uh, knife in the box i did struggle at school and i was probably <laughs> I was probably fundamentally quite lazy as well and used the laziness to not play the game, but to sort of not try as hard as I probably should have done. Um, and therefore, when I decided I was going to join the army, it didn't need as many qualifications as if I went to university. So maybe, yeah, the intellectual side of it was partly I didn't quite have what it needed and partly why do I need what I need? Because I reckon I'm good enough as I am. Man, you're sitting here, I'm watching you and you're describing yourself and all I can visualize is my own son, this 12-year-old boy that he's so wicked smart, but he just, he doesn't apply it because he's like, yeah, I can get by. I don't need to study because, you know, my mom and dad only need me to get a B, so I'm not going to, why do I want to study and have to get an A? I I can skate by on this. The fish, wow, that fish importing business, that sounds so fascinating. I mean, we obviously, I don't come across fish importers, so hearing that that somebody who's done that and been involved in that, that is is cool, because you always wonder where, you know, here in the States, you walk into PetSmart or Petco, and they've got all these fish, and you're like, man, how, somebody's growing them somewhere. Yeah, and and, and the, the amazing thing about it is my dad started that in the 50s, well, they weren't PetSmart, and they weren't garden centers that had that kind of thing he was the only person in the country he built a a heated warehouse 
that was about the size of probably an Olympic swimming pool side by side. And that was basically full of small aquariums, each one with the same species of fish in. And that was the store. That was the that was the the warehouse that stored the fish. And then he would ship the ship the fish in in bags. He worked out how much oxygen was needed to put 150 fish in a bag or to put one fish in a bag. And then the best way to keep them warm and how to keep them shop protected. And my dad is a super cool guy, but he's again not a guy that's been to university or college because back in the 50s. Even the guys in the in the universities didn't know how to do that. And my dad worked it out and his business grew to the point where everybody else went, hang on a minute, we can do that. And then he sort of got pushed to the side and, you know, he broke ground doing what he did and he did it really well. And then there came a point where everybody's doing it. So he chose that point to retire, you know, and, and in a way it's a shame, but in a way it's so cool to know that my dad did that. And I look back on the years when I was a kid and I used to go down to the warehouse, which was literally at the end of the garden, and it was heated to 70 degrees. And, you know, all the water was the correct temperatures and the correct pHs. And the guys that worked for him were passionate about it. But ultimately, he was just selling a product, which happened to come from the Amazon basin or from Singapore or even Israel or the Far East or whatever. You know, if people wanted more of this type of fish, he'd import them. You know, so, yeah, really. Cool. It's hard to come up with unique and genuine ideas today that someone hasn't done at some point. It's very hard. And to see him even in the fifties, pull that off and we'll put food on the table for all the years for, for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you, uh, once you graduated high school there, once you graduated school, you moved on to Bearwood college. Tell me about Bearwood. Yeah, that's right. Well, we have a, I think in UK, we, our terminology for, um, high school and college is slightly different, but if I can just explain, I went to Bearwood College, which is what we call a secondary school. Um, so I went there from when I was 13 through to when I was 18. Uh, so I think that would be the same as... Uh, as That'd be similar as high school. Yeah, exactly. So my high school was Bearwood College. It was originally um, the Royal Merchant Navy College. Um, that, when I went there, was more of a name than an actual the Royal Merchant Navy. But its history stemmed from sons and daughters of merchant navy seamen they sent their sons and daughters there and it happened to be two mile away from where my parents lived i have no connection with the merchant navy it just happens to be it was a public school i managed to get a place there and i did my um o levels which is the exams that you need to subsequently take a levels and then go to university i was there at that so yeah high school high school and then so you didn't elect to go to university you elected to join the british army you went to the Correct. Royal Military Academy? Yeah, absolutely. I, about 16, I joined, we had in at Bearwood College, we had something called the Cadets. And it's basically, um, it's an opportunity to see what the Army's all about. Um, they, you, you do it once a week and it's a sort of like a three or four hour um, activities, but it's all based on the Army structure. You wear the Army uniform, you do Army training, weapon training, navigation, uh, fun stuff like you know climbing trees and working out to try and get a uh, you know a, a, an oil barrel up the tree across the rope ladder and back down the other side and stuff like that and it encourages leadership it encourages comradeship and friendship amongst people and I joined the cadets and that straight away opened up the opportunity to think hang on a minute I quite like the army I'm going to join the army but what I would say is I was itching to leave school I was itching to say look I just want to get out in the big world 
I've done my studying. And again, this comes back to the laziness stroke. Do I really need to be there or can I find a better way and have fun? I think it's being efficient in life. Yeah, that's a good phrase. Thank you. I commend you for your service to your country. I you know, commend you on your service. You know, We've had a couple other uh, servicemen, former servicemen on, and we'll have them on again. I'm always uh, humbled by your service. Thank you. Thank you. So you're in the service now. You've uh, your Royal Military Academy. Sure. The- All right. So you're at the Royal Military Academy. They have a course of study for you, or you select your course of study. What did you gravitate towards, or did they put you in? When you... When you apply to be an army officer, which is the sort of the technical phrase, you're applying to be a generic army officer. So you don't have any affiliation to the infantry or to the armor or to artillery or whatever. So you arrive at the Military Academy of Sandhurst, which is a really cool place. I arrived in a minibus with two bags, an ironing board and a suit carrier with my jackets and so on over my arm. And as I walked up the main entrance into the college, you're met by a representative of the military and around you are 30 or 40 other guys all walking at the time that you walked in or all walking along with you. Also carrying an ironing board, they got their bags and they're walking into the next year of their life, which is the time that we spend at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. So I didn't go in knowing I was going to be in a particular part of the military. So the whole year that you're there, it is designed to break you down from being a spotty 17, 18 year old with an attitude or somebody who's quiet and meek. They break you down into the basics of what you should be, how they want to build you. And they use leadership techniques to do that. So uh, they put you into a platoon um, and they give you appointments to do every so often so that you are asked to get the guys on parade. So you are responsible on a particular day to make sure that everybody's at the right place at the right time. Something fairly basic, but to be fair, if you can't get to the right place at the right time at the beginning, you're going to be pretty screwed when it comes to having to do it for real. So by teaching people how to do the basic things over time, they slowly put in more and more pressure. And over the first half of the year I was there, you're treated, you're not treated with a lot of respect. You call everybody sir, doesn't matter what rank they are. You are told to jump when you jump. And if you have to jump higher, you do as high as you can. So the first half of the year was pretty painful. I didn't wear civilian clothes for six six weeks. I wore a red tracksuit when I wasn't in military uniform and I wore military uniform when I was told to. If we had to change military uniform five times in a day, we changed five times in a day. There was no question. Uh, really amusing story. Every week we had to have a haircut. Okay, so when you've had your hair cut down to literally nothing on your head on week one, why do you have to have your hair cut cut on week two? So I asked that question and boy, I wish I hadn't asked that question. I was told you do what you're told. So for the first six weeks, I'm getting my hair cut every week. It's costing me two pounds. And I'm thinking if that's what we've got to do, that's what we've got to do. And by asking the question why and getting told, shut up and get back in line, you soon realize that actually you do what you're told rather than question it. The second half of the year, uh, the last six months, you're given a lot more responsibility and a lot more respect. There came a point in the in the studies, the color sergeant or the master sergeant that was in charge of us in as a relationship to the American army um, started to call us, sir, because you'd earn the respect as you progress through the through the year. 
And then at the end of the year, you did a big final exercise, which tested all of your skills, your personal administration, how you deal with people, how you write, how you communicate, and also how you fight. Because the main way that you teach somebody is using the infantry tactics. So all of our training was around being an infantry soldier. And that's pretty tough. Um, You know, you're a foot soldier. There's no armored vehicles. There's no Land Rovers. There's no, you know, mechanized. It's all foot soldiering and uh, platoon attacks and company attacks and so on. And that's how they see if you're a good leader or a bad leader. And in that second half of the of the year, they then try and divert you into where you're best suited. And I was keen to stay within logistics. I drive Land Rovers. I was into Land Rovers at that time. So wanting to go into the logistics was something I was interested in. I'm not saying I wasn't interested in armoured vehicles or uh, interested in being an infantry soldier, but logistics was, I think, where I wanted to go. So at the end of the year, I chose to join the Royal Corps of Transport. And that part of the military accepted me as one of their officers. So at the end of the year, I did something called a pass out parade, which is a big parade. A member of the royal family is there to take the salute. All our friends, all our families get invited. And the intake, there's what nearly 200 of us in the intake. We march a big uh, uh, march past and then we march up the steps of the college building. And as you get to the top step, that is you formally, you are now a commissioned officer in the British Army. And it's there's a lot of, cer- of ceremony and pomp and circumstance about it. But actually walking up those steps, you've made it. And it's really cool. And, and if you get the chance to see on YouTube or even, you know, speak to people that have done it and, and visualize it, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and as I say, that actual activity of walking up the steps, you walk up there, I remember doing it. And it was like you're looking at the guys around you and you're all going, keep going, keep going. This is the last 10 seconds, nine, eight, seven. And the other side of the steps, nobody can see you in there. Your hats are in the air. You're whooping, you're hugging each other because you've just done possibly one of the hardest things you've ever done in your life. It's super cool. Wow. That is yeah. that is super cool. And you've spent the rest of your life in logistics. I did, yeah. Um, straight after Sandhurst, I had a week off holiday. Um, I put a V8 engine in my Land Rover in that week. And then I had to report to my first camp, which was basically my professional training as a logistics officer, which lasted about three months. So that first three months, again, you're at school, you're taught how to do things. But then by then, they've honed right in on, right, this is how logistics works. This is how we resupply ammunition, water, um, rations, medical supplies, personnel, how we move people around. And that three months is your school ready before you then go and do the job for real. Uh, My first job was in Germany. So I arrived in Germany uh, in um, 1989, uh, reported to my regiment, and I spent three years there learning and doing that job. Um, I had my first troop of soldiers, 35 soldiers, a couple of sergeants and a staff sergeant, and me, second lieutenant Chris Bowler. And that progression, the army is always looking at you as a person and how you as a person and the bigger picture. So you never know what's coming next, because I can remember being called into the office of my boss and he'd say, right, you know, you've been here six months. We want you to do this particular job. It might be take a troop of guys to southern Germany for two weeks and do rock climbing and kayaking and adventurous training. It might be we're sending you back to UK. There's a particular jobs going on and we need you to take your guys with their vehicles and spend time with another unit learning and doing a job. So you never knew what was coming next. A lot of variety. It was really cool. 
Well, I mean, that's always fun. Variety is the spice of life, right? Doing the same thing day in, day out doesn't work for you. It doesn't work for me. Many of the people that listen to this, they're not people that like the same thing day in, day out. It's uh, We like to new challenges, new ways to do things, find new ways to do them, new problems, solving new problems. Yeah, man, that's uh, where all did you get a serve at? Not just Germany, not just the UK. I think you've been all over the world. I was very fortunate. I was very fortunate. I served in Germany for three years. And during my three years in Germany, I was attached to the Australian army for six months. So I was shipped down to Australia. One of the Australian officers in a transport unit was came back up to UK, to Germany, and did my job in Germany. And I did his job in Australia. I did quite a few exercises around Europe, um, went into East Germany when the wall was still up. So it was still East Germany, West Germany, Iron Curtain. Uh, I did a couple of trips, shall we say. Um, but those first three years was really basically based in, in Germany. My second tour, I came back to UK and I joined something called the um, the Ace Mobile Force Land, which is a NATO military formed unit. And that was where I probably first encompassed something which I, to this very day, still need as a skill. And that's to be able to interact with people from different countries and languages. And that particular job lasted two years. And I worked in Norway. I was in Turkey. Um, I worked with the Danish military, a lot with the American army. I've, I've spent quite a lot of time with the American army in lots of little times. But when you add it all together, I've had quite a good experience with the military and in particular with the American army. And that job, gave me the opportunity to work with other militaries and see their equipment and see how they do things. But of course, the working language is English, but you then learn a bit of French and a bit of German and a bit of this and a bit of that. So that was probably the first time where I started doing something on a multi multinational basis. My third job, I did something completely, you know, un unreal. I went to Hong Kong and I became what we call a Gurkha officer. I worked with the Brigade of Gurkhas. These are Nepalese soldiers who 200 years ago became mercenaries in the British Army and over the last 200 years have evolved to be uh, a particular highly respected infantry type of soldier. And I was lucky enough to be chosen to be a logistics officer and a transport regiment, which was Nepalese soldiers. And I was based in Hong Kong initially, learnt their language over about a two month period. And then sadly, and there's a bit of a story on this, I went to Hong Kong for three months my wife managed to get her military service in Hong Kong and I flew back from Hong Kong the week before she flew to Hong Kong to start her time in Hong Kong as a nurse. So it wasn't the nicest from a social point of view. And again, that was probably one of the beginnings of being in the army is really cool. But when you want to do something different, the army wants you to do what they want. And you're then caught between that social and work of, you know what I mean? And oh, that was the beginnings of when things went a little bit wrong, where once I got married, you had to play the army game first and the married life second. Um, but Hong Kong was cool. I was there for three months and then subsequently spent six years with the Brigade of Gurkhas in two different jobs. And that was that was quite a good time. Now, somewhere in there, quite a story because I've got to ask it, but you ended up in a manager gig while in the military, managing a band that toured around, it was an ABBA tribute band, and their name Correct. just kills me. It's a Bjorn again. That's it. That's it. I did a, an operational tour in Bosnia in uh, 98. It was my second operational tour in Bosnia, and it was at a point in my military career where 
I just completed a, uh, a, deg- a degree course in the army, which was a year uh, of military technology. And at the end of that job, because I was a logistics officer, um, I went to a military unit which stored, prepared and looked after vehicles, everything from a main battle tank to a motorbike or a trailer or a piece of equipment. And my operational tour meant that I went to Bosnia and I looked after a fleet of of replacement vehicles. So if a vehicle up country is damaged or needs to be replaced, we held a stock, just like a shop. We had a stock of vehicles which were kept at prime condition and we basically moved those vehicles around, took the dead vehicles back. Some of them were damaged by accident, damaged by fire, and we acted as an exchange unit for those vehicles. And during that particular tour, I was pulled out, again, the typical scenario, Captain Bowler, uh, your boss needs to see you drive up to the office and, and, and there's something they want to talk to you about. Walked in the office and my boss was a, was a lady called Claire Harrell and she sat me down and she said, right, um, we have to fill a position where you need to look after uh, a bunch of civilians who have come to Bosnia for two weeks to ent- entertain the troops. Um, and they call it the Combined Services Entertainment Show, CSE, CSE Show. And basically, this group of entertainers who are straight off the street, they're, whatever they do, wherever they do, they volunteer to come out and entertain the soldiers. And we laid on 14 concerts in 16 days around Bosnia. So we would drive around Bosnia in a coach with three um, heavy goods vehicles carrying all of the staging, the lighting, the instruments, the sound studio, all their props, their costumes, their makeup, everything to run a professional entertainment concert. And it was my job to basically plan their route to all of the camps and each camp, maybe two or 300 British soldiers in each camp. And each night we built a stage, we built a sound, all the lighting, we basically laid on a full-on pop concert with a magician, with a comedian, with a troupe of dancing girls. And yeah, I got dicked to do that. It was a really hard job. <laughs> no, that's amazing. <laughs> and it's so cool to hear you talk about everything that you've done from like as a child g- going up and going through school, going through college in the military, and each little piece of the puzzle to get you to what we're going to talk about here in a, a little bit about what you do with U4 Europe, what you're doing with Ultra 4 in the States, building Hammertown, handling the logistics of Kicking the Hammers Week. It's very cool to see your skill set and how you have built it like like Legos or Lincoln Logs, like continue to build on each one. And we see like wh- where you've gotten little tidbits in your life that have made you this perfect dude to do what you're doing and now i understand why people said you've got to talk to bowler you've got to talk to this guy i'm (laughs) i'm fully getting there so you end up uh, getting out when you finally got out of the military and you by then you already had you know your 88 acre sheep farm there in wales when you got out you got into something that you've already touched on you mentioned it that you're a land rover guy and you end up going back home you have all of this let's call it uh, operational experience with equipment, with working on things. Let's talk about your your business here. Cambrian 4x4, you've opened it there on the farm and you handle all these Land Rovers in Wales. Like what were the years leading up to your retirement and planning for that retirement to get Cambrian going? And then years after as it kind of, as it started and you're kind of right off the bat, we will talk about your racing experience here in a little bit. Believe me, we're going to go there. But let's talk about Cambrian for a little bit. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. My last job in the army, I worked uh, for. Um, I was a staff, what we call a staff officer. So you're a uh, you work predominantly in in an office. 
and you are responsible for particular projects and aspects. And I mentioned about the fact that I did a military degree, oh, sorry, a degree in military technology. Well, that gave me a particular qualification to do something, uh, you know, to work in a technical environment. So my staff job, my office job was working in a project team responsible for installing a radio system into all of the British Army's military vehicles. And my range of vehicles was all of the armoured vehicles. So Challenger 2, Warrior, all of the fighting vehicles. Um, and basically, I worked embedded in General Dynamics, which worked alongside their opposite number civilian project manager, making sure that the design that the British Army had paid for actually met the criteria, met the requirement that we would paid for. And the physical components of that uh, equipment then obviously had to fit into a vehicle. And I was responsible for making sure that we reached the point where we said, right, this is the design, go to print, you know, make it happen and start fitting in vehicles. So that last job for two years, I'd already made my mind up. I've done my military time. This is going to be my last job. I went in to see my boss on day one and said, thanks for giving me the job, but I'm out of here in two years time. I will do everything you want me to do. But in two years time, I'm signing off. I'm leaving the military. And that was more or less when we bought the farm, I think. I think we'd had the farm about just two years before then. And I had made that commitment to say, I'm going. So, of course, you've then got to start planning the future. Really didn't want to work for anybody. I'd done my time working for people and being told what to do. So my option was to run a business. And because Land Rovers and vehicles was my hobby, I sort of thought, well, we give it a go. It can't be that hard. And my original idea was not to fix and repair and build them. It was actually to build an off-road course around the farm where you could train somebody to drive their vehicle, teach them how to drive down a steep hill, drive through mud, drive up a, drive up a steep hill, how to control a vehicle at slow speed as a working vehicle, not as a competition vehicle. So my wife and I looked at the 80-acre farm and thought, well, if we cut a track here and we build this here and things like that. And that was the original, original plan. And it didn't really go very well because we had a couple of people come to the farm, but they they wanted to do a tour. They didn't want to come to one place and drive around a boggy field for a couple of days and get fed and get accommodated. And at the same time, people were calling me and saying, I've got a Land Rover and the clutch is gone. I sort of took the odd job on the side. And it soon became apparent that actually teaching people how to drive a vehicle probably wasn't going to happen. And maybe that was my naivety of thinking, this is what I want to do. Let's make it work. When actually the only way you can make it work is if people come to you and they weren't coming to me for that. They were coming to me for something else. So I very quickly realized that I needed to be ahead of the game when it comes to fixing vehicles. And I paid a lot of money from my pension money from the military. And I bought a pretty state of the art diagnostic computer, which was specific to Land Rovers. And I've never looked back because now I lived in a very Land Rover rich area. A lot of the farmers have got Land Rovers and Range Rovers and Discoveries. And the local Land Rover dealer was charging three or four times per hour the rate I was charging. And I was able to correct, fix, diagnose, repair their vehicles at a, at a more competitive rate in a, more, in, in a much more suited environment that the farmers were used to. They drive down my track into the yard. They see sheep in one field, cows in another, a farmyard that looks pretty similar to their farmyard and a guy that works in a fairly big shed that says, right, bring it in. What's the problem? Tell me what's wrong. We fix it. They pay the money. They go. As opposed to a dealership that says, I can't work on your car for two and a half weeks because that's when we're next free and you drop it off and totally alien to a lot of people that just want their car fixing so they can do their job. And over the last 13 years, it's just grown and grown to the point now where I can't keep up. (laughs) 
Well, that and traveling around for Ultra 4 also, you know, takes a ding on that too. If you're not in the shop, if you're not there managing the business, it's really cool to see the entrepreneurial spirit in you that you obviously had to have gotten from your father and all those years of watching him. I think you're right because the military doesn't give you an entrepreneurial spirit. It doesn't teach you how to run a business because in the military, to a certain extent, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen and the resources are there. You don't have to sit back and go, well, can I afford that or when can I do that? You just do it. So my entrepreneurial spirit, I'm pretty sure it comes from the fact that my dad run a business. And as you said earlier on in the interview, if you've got to put food on the table, you've got to work it out. And I was lucky because I didn't plan to set a business up in Wales. The moving to Wales was put the family in a stable environment. The farm wasn't particularly expensive because Wales, you know, the land isn't top land. It's not building land. So they were in a stable environment. I then come back from the military and try to build something. And as I say, I look back on the last 13 years since I left and I'm really pleased the way it's gone. And, you know, without blowing smoke up. Yeah, I, I think I've achieved it. What, what I set out to do, which is to put food on the table. Right. right. No, I think uh, I do think you've been very successful. Now, somewhere in there, we're going to jump back. This is going to be something of a flashback. Let's walk through your racing pedigree. Okay. Um, going back to school, uh, my best mate at school, Carl Brown, he and I were both in the cadets. He was a year ahead of me, and he had a Land Rover, a Series 1, 1955 Series 1 Land Rover that he used as his car, and because he could drive, he came to college in it. He was a boarder. In other words, he stayed at college for um, three months at a time, whereas I was a day boy, so I traveled backwards and forwards every day, and um, he had a Land Rover. And in the cadets, we were put together on a visit of a general. I can't remember what it was now. General came to visit the cadets as an inspection. And I was told to go with Carl Brown. He was sergeant. I was a corporal um, and learn about his Land Rover so that when the general comes and asks a question, you can talk about it. Up until that point, I had no interest in Land Rovers. And Carl and I very soon became good friends. And I was his best man. And he was my best man at our weddings. And um, he got me into Land Rovers. And once you've got a Land Rover, and once I joined the army, I bought a, a, a Range Rover in Germany. And then all of a sudden you start doing competitions. And the competition can be pretty basic. It can be, you know, driving around a training area on a navigation. So you're not under speed, you're just competing. And you get that competitive bug. And I think the Land Rovers gave me that desire and that competition bug. Uh, I started off with navigational events in the military. I then started doing something which you guys call rock crawling, which we call trialing, which is slow speed maneuvering over a very, very arduous course. Well, in UK, it usually involves mud, it usually involves trees, and it usually involves damage. Um, so you end up starting to look at the Land Rover and go, well, I keep bending the front wing, so let's put a bar there, and then that stops that. And then I keep blowing the back tire out because whenever I rub against a tree, it blows the back tire out. So you start to modify it, and the trialing, then got quicker and quicker. And then you start to think, oh, hang on a minute, I put a roll cage in this and I put some nice seats in it. I can go racing. And that's that's where it all went wrong. I just went down that line. It's all downhill from there. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm not going to edit this out, but I do think it, it is of note. Today's interview, you're actually able to sit, you're sitting in a car in Poland, you know, pulling some Wi-Fi off of a building there. And I'm getting to watch everything going on behind you. And there's trucks coming and going. And this one, yeah. that's a, lots of beeping, lots of backing up. There's a motorcycle a little bit earlier. I'm not going to take that out, but just for the listener experience. Hey, here's what the environment is. I have Chris. I've got him sitting, <laughs> sitting down in the talent tank. The talent 
out and think being this uh, sedan in Poland and all the work that's going on around him outside. So it's mostly quiet, but if you hear some some random beeping or something while you're on your morning commute, it's probably coming from Chris's car in Poland a few weeks ago from the point you're listening. So it's just it's just making me laugh here, Chris. You, you're doing some rock crawling and you've decided uh, you get some fabrication skills you guys are putting in roll cages and now you're uh, you're racing. That took it to a different level because in UK, we have a club called the All-Wheel Drive Club. That has always been the predominant club that allows speed off-road racing. Um, and again, you build a vehicle, you turn up to a meeting. The The meetings invariably are on a Sunday. They're a one-day race. Um, and where I lived before I moved to Wales, there was a good selection of about eight or nine across the year that you could go to. A couple of hours drive, no problem at all. And you turn up to the meeting and there could be anything between 30 and 50 other cars, all in different classes. And when I first started, they tended to be based on Range Rovers um, because they were a fairly cheap and fairly tough vehicle with which to be able to build a vehicle from. And then as they become more competitive, people take the stock shocks off and put Bilsteins on. And then a couple of years later, people are putting Fox on and King on. Then the roll cages get lighter and closer to the chassis. The body starts to be stripped off and there's more aluminium panelling. And then eventually you're basically taking a Range Rover or a Land Rover chassis, building a purpose-built body and then putting all the, the fine performance equipment on there. And over about a 10-year period, I built my first car, which was just a stock car uh, and raced and had a great time. And then you want to go faster, you want to feel more comfortable and safer at speed. I bought a set of second-hand Kings. Wow, what a transformation. Then I built the second car, and this is at the point at which I'd already left the military, and I was running the Land Rover business, and I decided that my favorite Land Rover is a Discovery 2, which I think you guys have got out there. Um, And I bought an accident-damaged Discovery 2, and I had it turned into a space-frame tubular-bodied pickup truck. So it looked loosely like an f-150 a little bit smaller but it was based on the dimensions of a of an early series one land rover and i raced that for about four years uh turbocharged two and a half uh, liter diesel engine five cylinder uh stock transmission stock axles i took the entire wiring loom from the discovery so that i then had everything working as if it was a stock car. So I could plug the computer in if I had an engine problem. I could plug the computer in if I had a, had a running lights problem or an ABS problem. So I took a basic design and just added the performance bit in a different body. I've still got that car today, and, and that served me well for about four or five years. Then Ultra 4 came to UK, and I competed in the first King of the Valleys, which was the very first UK race that was based on the Ultra 4 format. And I raced it in the TD5, the, the, the pickup truck I've just explained, with my son David as my co-driver. Now, this car has got a two-and-a-half-foot rear overhang over the back axle. It's really not a rock crawler. It's really not designed to do Ultra 4-style racing. And the race circuit we used was a place that we use up now. We used it two months ago, a place called Walters Arena. And it's a disused coal mine, a lot of rock, a lot of rough terrain, a lot of very, very, very hard terrain. And that pickup truck did it. She did the four laps she had to do. It was like pulling teeth trying to get that thing to drive up the course. And in comparison to a lot of the other cars, people were looking at it. I remember looking at one point, I was coming down a track very slowly, very, very rough track. And I looked up above me and there was all these spectators looking at me and some of them were laughing. Some of them were pointing at it going, I don't believe I'm seeing that thing coming up here. Because a lot of the other cars, no overhangs, bigger tires, big engines. 
and there's David and I, and we did it. And we weren't the fastest. I came 15th out of 35, and I finished the event. And that was the point at which I decided, actually, we now need to develop a vehicle that is competitive. Um, and I took the same principle. I bought a Discovery 2 V8 with a 4.6 V8 in it, about 230 horse. And I built a wheels, one wheel on each corner space frame, used all the wiring loom again. But this time, I built the car based on suspension. Um, I used Fox shocks because I believe they're the best. The agent in UK, Paul Jones from Prolinx, um, I spoke to him. He already knew about me and we'd done a little bit of work. He'd serviced some of my shocks for me. Um, I said, I'm going to build a car and I want it to do this. And I want you to tell me the suspension I need. And he said, this is going to be expensive. And I said, the suspension is the car. If the suspension doesn't work, the rest of the car may as well junk it. So he basically put together a package and we built the suspension components before we'd even really started building the car. So when the car was finished, we knew we were having bypass. We knew we were having two inch coilovers. We knew the suspension travel. We knew the eyeback springs we were having. And so when the car was finished, that was all fitted and we went racing. And that car really transformed my competitive time because it was a capable car at that time. Now, Ultra 4 racing in Europe, which we now obviously know as Ultra 4 Europe, has gone through a very, very fast transition. It's gone from asking people to bring what they had at the time and race it until now, where really you have to build a fairly tricked up, fairly bespoke vehicle to compete properly. That V8 race car was good for a couple of years. And as the design of vehicles raced past my design, mine is now, it's pretty old hat, sadly. It's still a capable car, but it's nowhere near as capable as uh, as the uh, you know as the ones that are now. And I probably reached a point where I realised that I couldn't carry on throwing money at this. I don't have any sponsors, and we don't tend to have sponsors at the clubman level. It's you, what you can afford, and, and when you can race. And I think that was the turning point where I decided, okay, I'm not going to hang the the race helmet up just yet, but I'm not going to keep throwing money at something which I just can't keep up with. Um, and that's probably where I reached the limit of the competitive. But in that time, I've done winch challenge. I've done hill rallies, which is basically off-road rally driving. I had a short stint for three years as a rally driver in the military. Um, I've done something called team recovery. Um, I've won a couple of events and a couple of challenge series. And the beautiful thing about it is, is that the guy I did that with, my son David, he got to see that. He was fortunate enough in a way that I saw my dad do his business David saw me and my competitive racing. He was my co-driver. And so I hope he learned something out of it. But as I say, once I realized that I couldn't keep up with the chasing the technology to keep the competitive edge, that's the point at which I think I said, right, we'll pull the old girl out when we can and have a bit of fun. But she stays as she stays. And I've still got that race car, too. You know what I find so interesting and so fascinating is you guys in the UK, your development of off, based off the Land Rover platform versus what we see here stateside is the development off the Jeep platform. Correct. And they, they've had parallel paths, you know, depending on the terrain. Now, the terrain stuff that I've seen, all the stuff I'd seen pre, say, Ultra 4 Europe had been, it seemed to be these winch challenges and the development of fast winches like uh, like the Giggle Pin, which is yeah, the, the two worn winch motors on the with the gearbox to make them go twice as fast, the winch challenges. And you said you were involved in that. So here in the States, and you even see it in our races, we try to avoid winching at all costs. You guys yeah. in the UK, you actually have competitions just to go winch. Tell me about Correct. that mindset. Um, well, again, that started with troiling. You've troiled and driven a piece of terrain and you 
get to a point where you can't drive it anymore, well, then you put something on your vehicle that you can keep going. And the winch became the ability to go where the car wouldn't drive. And that then just grew and grew and grew. So you then have events where you have a piece of land, I don't know, could be a couple of acres, could be 200, 300 acres, and you put navigational points out on that area. And those checkpoints are uh, like an orienteering punch that you can punch a scorecard to say you've been there. So you've got to physically get the vehicle to the punch. Now, if the punch is halfway up a tree, in the bottom of a bog, on the side of a rock face or whatever, you've got to be able to get that vehicle there. And 60% of it is driving and 40% of it is, well, if I can't drive that last bit, I'm going to have to winch it there. Now, I've seen winch cars with three winches on them, one on the front, one on the back, one in the middle. And what it basically means is you can literally pick the car off the ground. And I've actually seen somebody on a competition where they had to cross a gorge, a a ravine that's probably two or three vehicles length. And they basically lifted the vehicle up on the back and then used the middle winch to support the vehicle in a particular position whilst they paid out with one winch and paid in with the other. And you almost put the thing onto like a flywire, admittedly only maybe a couple of foot off the ground. But by using the winches, it's just another means of moving a vehicle from A to B. I'm laughing, but it's it's crazy what we as humans will do to compete, right? You, uh, yeah. you we, we dangle the carrot and then we challenge ourselves and then we go do it. And the things that we'll do, and most of the time, we only do it because our friends are doing it. Uh, absolutely. Because it's cool to do it with other people. That's um, right. I mean, I did, I, I did a challenge event where the checkpoint was 12 foot up a tree and we winched the truck 12 foot up a tree. And I've got a picture of the car. It's level. I'm sat in it and the front and the back winch is winched, is connected to bows of the tree. And we basically inch by inch winched the vehicle up to the point where I could reach the checkpoint and clip punch my scorecard and then winch it back down. And the wheels were about seven foot off the ground. You know, and that's insane. You think, well, why? But hey, this is how we evolve. If you can't drive, you work out a way of getting there. And then once you get bored of that, then you say, well, how fast can you do that same thing? So then you put time against the physics and then you just keep getting more and more competitive. And I think, to be fair, that's probably where rock crawling and Baja desert racing, when you throw the two together, time is the common denominator because all of a sudden you've got another, uh, shall we say, element of being able to say you are fastest and you are slowest. Um, And again, it's evolution. And we just keep raising the bar. I fla- I'm flashing back in my head too. It, it was a. I'm not even sure which year it was, but it was an event that uh, it had two downs. It, so this was probably ten years ago. It had two down paths, and one was a, like a 15 foot drop off cliff. And we looked yeah. at this. I remember walking that course and looking at these 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 two paths and going, "Well, you go off the cliff, and you're going to be much faster." But man, that's a yeah. drop. And then Derek West, racer out of Missouri. Derek, he he launches down this 15 foot drop off and he was, he was faster. And then that just set the bar. There was, it was no longer an option to take the slow line. If you wanted, if you wanted to hang with him, you had to go off this 15 foot cliff and it did it, it. You know, some people weren't able to, you know, they'd land on their nose and not, and not be able to floor it and run out from underneath it. The car would go over, you know, nose over, you know, ass over tea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> right. When you took your uh, your race car that you'd been competing like King of the Valleys the initial couple of years, you know, very purpose built rig, and as technology has progressed past it, you come to a, a point where you're like, you know what, we're not, you know, we're not as competitive as we want to be with this, but we're still heavily involved. Our friends are still doing it. You get involved with U4 Ultra Four Europe, and now you've progressed with that in that role. You took a, you've taken a job. You work for Dave. You work for Hammer King, but you run Europe. 
you broke up a little bit there, but I think I got the, the most of the gist of the question. Yeah, I was asked to lay a course for the first um, King of Wales, which was 2015, and um, basically was was said look we want to run a race uh similar to king of wales and i went to the area that we'd used which i'd raced on before the um the course was quite challenging to be fair i learned from the beginning that the way to lay a course out was as we said in the beginning of the interview to to try and give you know all the all the cars a fair opportunity on the course okay so all right so everybody we're back Chris and I had a little bit of a connectivity issue, a little Wi-Fi drop where he was at in Poland. So we took a couple hours off. We were back at it. The audio we think is fixed, we hope, but you're along for the ride. Sorry. Uh, I think you can look past any of the quirks. The content's really good. So I believe where Chris and I dropped off was we were talking about his decision from his current car, the his Land Rover that he and his son had been racing in 4400 to the point where he wasn't com- as competitive as he'd like to be. Tech had moved a little bit past him, and he ends up getting involved with the Ultra Four organization with Hammer King Productions, and ends up in his current role that he's in, or at least a role with Ultra Four, building courses. Yeah, that's absolutely spot on. Um, I was asked to uh, lay the course for King of Wales 2015, so that was my first involvement with Ultra Four Europe, and that went really well. It, we laid a course out on an area I was familiar with, and uh, it was really successful. It was a tough jump to go from being a competitor to being an organizer, but actually being a competitor was an advantage because I then understood what the competitor's demands are and why it's so important to make sure that the rules are clear, make sure the course is marked correctly, and if there is any reason to, to shall we say, not necessarily penalize somebody, but to have to correct uh, or, or relate to a decision or overrule or, or discuss any issues during the race. If you've had that competitive background, it's actually such a massive advantage. And I was dealing with people that weren't competitors who were trying to make decisions. And my competitive experience enabled us to make the correct decision for our competitors at the time, um, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, you were uh, something of a subject matter expert. Well, exactly. And more importantly, you you share the passion, even though you're on the, shall we say, the management side, you know, you understand when a competitor is having a problem uh, and, you know, when he's really up against it, when he's having problems with the car, uh, the weather's against him and all that. And it's it's not that you're more lenient to somebody, but you can sympathize and therefore you can treat them with a little bit more, shall we say, respect. Uh, rather than just somebody that you just treat as a customer, if you if you didn't understand the situation that he was in, because you've been in that situation. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I actually see that coming through in this podcast, and the success that I've had with it has been truly because of something of being a subject matter expert on Ultra Four and Ultra Four racing in the community by being immersed in it and being a member of it for you know greater than a decade. You kind of end up having that that warmth and that camaraderie and you were able to speak in the same terms, same language, so to speak. No, I totally agree. And as I say, at the end of that two day event, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was hard work. You know, the amount of work you've got to put in to lay the course and set it up three or four days worth. And then obviously competitors arrive. You've got to make sure that the, the, the reception area is great, the paperwork, then you've got to obviously to start them off. And I remember when we first started the, the race itself, after we'd done the qualifying and we lined all the cars up on the Saturday morning, we normally race on a Saturday, Sunday over here. Um, and I actually had quite an emotional issue with sending vehicles out onto a course that I had designed. 
because if I'd got it wrong, I'm, for want of a better word, sending people into an environment that may not be right. And you're, you've got to trust that what you've done is correct. And I remember going down the line of all the competitors as they, as they lined up at the start line and shaking every competitor's hand, wishing them good luck. And I actually felt quite emotional about it. It wasn't just, ah, oh, there's the course, get on with it. You actually felt like you were responsible for whatever happened to them on the course. Even though you're, you can't be responsible for everything, but you wanted to make sure. Does, does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is your creation. This is your baby. You are an artist. You are a course artist. And these guys are, they are there to honor, so to speak, what you've created by challenging yeah. themselves with something that you made for them. It's really beautiful, I mean, when yeah. you think about it in those terms. And that was an experience that I not really ever had before. I've dealt with demanding situations in the military where you're taking soldiers to the limit, you're asking them to do things. I mean, my definition of leadership is you're asking somebody to do something that they fundamentally don't want to do. Now, that doesn't mean that you're ordering them to do something, but it's persuasion, it's enticing them, it's giving them confidence, it's reassuring them. And in the worst of situations, you may never see them again. And, you know, whereas some of the more sort of mundane situations, you're making them do a job that they just don't want to do. And you've got to sort of persuade them and cajole them. Well, in a race car, the moment that competitor leaves the line, all they've got to link you with them is the course that you've got them to drive. And of course, you want the course to be right. You don't want any holdups and things like that. So 2015, King of Wales, that first event was a real baptism of fire for me because I was doing something that I'd probably never really done before in the same vein. And that was in the July of 2015. And in December 2015, I had a phone call from Richard Crossland, who is the, the lead for Ultra 4 Europe. And he said, uh, I'd like you to do King of France, which was the following May. And we went out, uh, did a recce of the site in the January. And I sort of found myself all of a sudden on the roller coaster ride of we do an event and we plan the next and we do an event and we plan the next. And I think I'm on my 11th or 12th King event now in Ultra 4 Europe. Um, I've done four in France, four in Britain, um, one in Spain, two in Poland, and I've done a couple of smaller events for Ultra 4 Europe. So I've got into a routine, but every event is still important. I still walk down the line. I still shake the guy's hands, and I still feel, have I done this right? Of course you have, but you still have that, not doubt, but you have that sort of emotion in you that wants to make sure it's right, you know, for the obvious reason. I'm sure there's a little bit of anxiety with that. Yeah, there is. There is. Yeah. It's a situation that I've, I've sort of developed myself. There are certain ways I want to do things. I'm insistent on certain things happening. Um, and you go, okay, fine, I'll change it for, for good or bad reason. But there are certain things that are sort of almost like a tradition for me now in the way that I do an event. I like to use a particular color arrow for one particular type of qualifying. Um, and when you give a brief, you make sure that the drivers are aware of that. And you're trying to make it easier for them or take as much of the problems away so that their job in the car is to steer and drive and, and keep it going rather than having to worry about whether the course may or may not be correctly marked. You know, so, yeah, it, I've got into that sort of routine now. That is amazing. So coming back from there, you ended up based on your stature, based on your resume of course building there in Europe. You have started coming to the February event in Johnson Valley, California for King of the Hammers and running a whole bunch of the show there, picking up a whole bunch of, uh, say, tasks. That's correct. It's quite an amusing story, actually, how that all came about. Um, I first met Dave Cole at King of France 2017, I believe. 
shall we say, we initially uh, had a, a bit of a conflict of interest in terms of the way events are run in Europe, which because of the geography of the land, the fact that we're dealing with private land, the fact that we're dealing with landowners who speak a different language, and some of the concessions you have to give in order to achieve what you actually want. So we arrive in a location and the Ultra 4 template. Now, some landowners and the geography of some land doesn't allow that template to fit perfectly. And Dave came to King of France. I was already on site. We first met and we had a, a, a bit of a conference in the, in the restaurant area of the location. And he was, maybe I didn't explain it right. Maybe he didn't understand what I was explaining. I don't know. And we, we had a bit of a lock horn session. I'll be perfectly honest with that. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, the guy you work with, you know, sometimes you're going to have a difference of opinion. You then, between the two of you, work it out. And we sure did work it out. But it was amusing the way it was worked out. And we went out on the course and I showed him what I was trying to explain. And he seemed content with the situation. No problem. So the event starts and our qualifying was in the evening. So Dave grabbed hold of me and said, right, we're going to go and sit up on top of the hill and watch the start from a distance. So the two of us get in my Land Rover, drive up to the top of this hill where he had a great overview of the whole course. And he asked me the question, uh, so who do you think is going to have the fastest car? And we, on the radio, chatted between me and JT and Richard Crossland, and we all sort of swapped who we thought was going to win and what time we were going to get. So that set the benchmark for the prologue. And we're watching the times go through and Dave's calling the times in and right, okay, and... And we just had a really cool time watching this prologue happen. And at the end of it, completely out of the blue, Dave turned around to me and said, I'd like you to come to Johnson Valley and join my core team. Now, of course, I was completely blown away with that because I'd only just met the guy. He'd obviously heard of me. He knew that King of Wales the year before had gone ahead, no problem. He'd seen what I'd done at King of France. We had had a bit of a, a difference of opinion, but we'd come to a, a mutual confirmation that that's how we were going to be that's how what was going to happen and we agreed where I needed to make things better and he understood why I was doing things in a different way and from that point onwards we just we just hit it off and to be asked literally within a day and a half of meeting somebody I'm without wishing to blow my own trumpet I obviously must have impressed him and he asked me to join the core team so 2018 sorry 2017 I went out to Hammers and basically joined the team as a Joe soldier on the ground and did whatever needed to be done. Digging trenches, putting wire in, uh, helping put up fencing, put up tents, whatever needed to be done. And that was my first introduction to Hammers for a month. Yeah, so you joined like Jeremy Dickinson and the likes of that crew, building yeah. the town that 80,000 people are going to show up to and call home for 9, 10, 11 days. Beautiful. Exactly. And of course, I arrived pretty much sixth or seventh RV on the lake bed. Dave took me up there and picked me up from the airport, took me up there. And I had no appreciation of what I had let myself in for because the only thing I had ever seen before on Hammers was my son, David, who was passionate about it, used to show me videos of the competition. And I just saw it as a load of cars racing in the desert. And I'm not saying that I wasn't interested in it, but I didn't appreciate the size of what it had become. So I arrive on the lake bed and there's half a dozen RVs um, in the shadow of Means Butte on the edge of the lake bed. The very basics had already been set out. The perimeter fence was there, but that was about it. And in that next two weeks, as it just grew and grew and grew, of course, you're working day to day and you see vehicles turn up, people turn up, equipment turning up. 
And then you're told, right, you come with me, we're going to build this. You come with me, we're going to sort that out. And it slowly, slowly gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, of course, the, the, week, the competition week is then just mind-blowing. The number of vehicles, the amount of people, the, the speed in which everything happens. Each day, there's, a, there's a, um, a major race for the UTV. The next day, EMC. The next day, 4,400. And it's just the whole size of it, which you just cannot compare with anything else that I've ever experienced in terms of motorsport. So it, it, I really did feel like I've been dumped in the deep end in terms of, wow, you're really playing with the big boys now. You are absolutely one of the big boys. Absolutely. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm on the edge of the big <laughs> I haven't had a conversation with anyone about Hammertown in the last, call it four months, where your name hasn't come up. So it's very cool to put that together and to see that's another one of, uh, you know, one of your babies that you've been in, you know, heavily and deeply involved in the building of all the amenities, making sure, like you said, the fence is up, the Wi-Fi is up, the cables are buried, the tents are built, the check, you know, the, what is it? The checking gate. What do you call the main entrance? The the grand entrance there on Boone Road. All of those things that you have been just heavily involved in. That's getting camera stages built in Chocolate Thunder. That's getting all of the advertiser banners up, all the advertiser flags up. Just everything that I mean, you to come to appreciate that as a spectator. I don't know. I, I don't know a good way to even explain without someone who's never been to Johnson Valley to see how grandiose the whole production is, and it's a freight train coming at you every single day that you can't stop you can't change there's a schedule it's out and it is happening come hell or high water it's if it's freezing it's raining it's snowing it's blowing or it's sunny and 95 degrees it's happening it's going and the cars are leaving the line right and having to manage all that yeah absolutely absolutely and like i say i mean i'm i'm not afraid of you know managing big problems and to be fair you know i've had my fair share of that in the military i mean that's what i was trained for but as I say, my first year I went out there very much as just one of the gang. I didn't really have a lot of management role, as in, like, you're in charge of all of this. Second year I went out, I was there for just two weeks. Unfortunately, in work commitments, family commitments, I wasn't able to be there for the full race. Obviously, at the end of that uh, 2018 year, we obviously had the sad news regarding Sean Wilson. And I was very, very privileged to be asked by Dave to come out for 2019 and attempt, and I use the word attempt, in the in the most honourable way that I possibly can to fill the shoes uh, and assist Dave in 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 not taking over from Sean, but to try and replicate the same standards and the same amazing high standards that that he was able to do in the many years before that that um, you know that change. And so 2019 was quite a pivotal year for me because I became much more involved in the decision making and the planning, and also, to be fair, the management of personnel. And the core team that Dave has are absolutely amazing group of people, you know, are all experienced many, many more times to hammers than I had. And I felt very honoured and privileged to to lead those guys on the shop floor and, 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 you know, provide the facilities that they needed. And it wasn't a question of, no, 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 I'm going to tell you how to do it. These guys knew what to do. But if they needed a vehicle to go and do a job, course marking, or go up to Means Butte and set something up, they needed to know that that vehicle was serviced and it was reliable and it had fuel in and they knew where the keys were. And then we made some systems in the staff tent where we had a vehicle board. So we knew that if a vehicle was out, the key wasn't hanging on the, on the hook. If it was in, it was there. And then who was, who was going to be using it? We had time schedules and planning structures to be able to work out so that people knew what they, they were doing that day and what they were going to hopefully doing the following day. And those little sort of management tools, which aren't particularly revolutionary, just made it just oiled the cogs of an already well-oiled machine. 
And as I say, I felt that that was where I needed to be in Hammertown, resourcing what was needed and mundane jobs such as making sure that all the staff RVs or the, 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 the black water sucked out, they've got fresh water back in, the gas is replenished, you know, going up to wheelers and picking up parcels and packages of stuff that's coming in. And it, yeah, it's logistics. It's, it's to be fair, it's what I'm, I was originally trained for and you just apply that in a different way. The beauty of it is, is that I've applied it in a way that still allows me to do and watch and take part in what I like to do, which is competing and racing in vehicles. It's cool as. Well, I think I think a good name for you would be like you're the the, the head of public works for Hammertown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I know we kind of glossed over we kind of glossed over it, but I want to jump back to uh, Sean Wilson. Uh, you know, we lost him a couple years ago, and he did. You know, it, until he passed away, I really didn't realize everything that Sean did for King of the Hammers and making that machine so well oiled and keeping the oil in the right spot on the right cogs. And Sean was the guy behind the scenes, pulling the levers, pushing the buttons, and doing the things that you know. Dave obviously has an overall idea of what he wants to accomplish with King of the Hammers, but Sean was a guy who in the you know, the early 10 years was the guy that made it happen as far as Hammertown and the production and all that. With his passing, he left some very big shoes to fill, but you stepped up. I mean, you really did step up, Chris. You stepped up, you filled those shoes, and here we are today, and King of the Hammers is not getting smaller. Uh, no, definitely not. We're definitely, uh, we're going in the right direction. It's just a question of being able to maintain the service, and I and I do mean that the service is actually quite important. It's a service to Dave to make sure that his aspirations, his plans, and to be fair, you know, it's not like he's got a standard format and every year it's always the same. There's different things happen in different years. He tries different ways of making it more streamlined. He comes up with different ideas. And, and so you can't just take a template and just follow it, you know, yada, yada, yada. You've got to sort of go with the next year's plans. And so, as I say, you know, you, you're right. You, you've got to be able to react and go, right, we're going to do it slightly differently this year. If it doesn't work, okay, fine. We step back, move to another position and then try on a different way. But that is, you know, the shifting sounds of management. Well, I think that's really cool to go back to something we talked about way early in this interview was just the ability to be dynamic and do a job that's different every day with new challenges every day and new solutions to those problems to where it's not the same mundane day in, day out. That would bore you. I know you. I can already tell yeah. that that would bore you. <laughs> yeah. So the lazy school boy coming out. <laughs> right, right. Right. Absolutely. So who wins 4,400 2020? Yeah, good question. Good question. Some would say that Jason Shear is on a roll. Uh, others would say that there's teams are looking at his two years on the trot win, and they're going to make a make a a change of that. Um, I, I think it's up in the air. I really do. Um, you know, the technologies of the vehicles is improving again. You know, they're 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 all looking at their equipment. They're all looking at what they need to be and and where they probably not achieved so well in the previous year they know where the mistakes are they know where they need to improve so to be perfectly honest i really couldn't call it jason shearer happens to be and always has been my favorite driver because i sort of used one of his previous cars as a template for the planning of one of my cars so yeah i got a bit of a soft spot for jason but i really don't think we should take it for granted he's going to do pull the third one out of the bag i think it's anybody's game to be fair Oh, I I think so. I I fully agree with that. Jason is a guy that you you can't ever discount. But you all, the other side of that is you can't ever discount the hammers. They're the hammers. Correct. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier on about the weather. I mean, last year with the wind that we had, the problems we had with the tentage, 
I mean, I've been on the lake bed three years on the row now, and last year was by far the coldest. Um, and if that had been just two days the wrong side of when we started the racing, we could have been racing in some serious, serious weather. And the weather conditions really is a level. It doesn't matter how good a driver or how well prepared a car is, the environment that you're racing in is is very often the thing that will make the telling tale. Well, that said, I think it would, as a spectator, I will qualify that, as a spectator, I think that would be really cool to see these guys racing in snow. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> and that would bring up your winch fest and uh, all those winch skills when uh, all the rocks have uh, you know ice and ice and snow on it. That could be fun. That could be fun. Yeah. You and JT could take a course that maybe they've wanted to be 250 miles. It ends up being 150 miles one loop because of how icy it is. Yeah. Oh, exciting. Yeah. It's so exciting. Absolutely. And of course, don't remember this year coming, we're, we're planning, there are 10 teams coming from Europe. Well, we're bringing the Team Europe with us again this year. And don't forget, a lot of these guys are experienced winchmen. So that feeds into the mix of the, of the, of the national crews. They're bringing in something different to see. So yeah, winching, winching could be the, the name of the game. <laughs> to bring 10 teams all the way over from uh, another continent across the the big Atlantic pond and all the way to California is very cool. I know it's been a few years ago, but I'm in Houston. I'm right off uh, the port of Houston is only about you know 30 minute drive for me. And a few years ago, yeah. Levi Shirley calls me and says, Hey, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm you know working at that time. He goes, Hey, can you run over yeah. to port of Houston and pick up Rob Butler's car? It's setting in customs. It's cleared customs <laughs> and I'm not going to be there for two more days. Can you go get it? And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I truck and trailer were already, you know, from of mine were already yeah. hooked up at the shop. So I run over there and grab Rob Butler's car from him for him from uh, Port, Port of Houston, load it up and take it to my shop for a little bit. But yeah, I mean, that's that's always an offer available to any any of the European teams that they have to come through Houston versus come through California or wherever uh, the boat goes with their cars. It's always available. But like I said, that's part of the, the Ultra 4 family happening. And the family is exactly the right word. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world, that family is there, you know, and whether it be in the heat of battle when you're racing, whether it be when you're in the bar having a few beers or whether you're helping them changing a tire in the pit area and, and just shooting the breeze and just making sure they're okay. The family element of it shines through massively over the whole thing. It's like that overall encompassing thing. We're all in this together and we're going to come through it together. Oh yeah, this conversation we're having just today. I didn't know you before this morning in in person or your voice. I've seen pictures of you. I've read about you, but here we are. We've spent the last you know a couple hours to, of our day together, and man, I, I I really like you. I'm glad we had you on. So, what does the future hold for Chris Bowler? Uh, it's when you asked me, uh, you know, to look into sort of researching for the interview, and I looked at that and I thought, wow, that's actually something that I don't consider very often what the future holds. It's all too easy just to take each, keep going with the work, the same customers coming in, the same, you know, problems on the farm. My boys have now left, left home. So my wife and I are, are considering the options of how much time and effort it takes with just two people to run a sheep farm and a Land Rover business, whereas two or three years ago when the boys were at home, we had an extra two pairs of hands. So maybe the, the Land Rover business may well just get sort of wound down a little bit and it just becomes a hobby workshop. Maybe we may end up selling the farm and moving somewhere else. My wife is really keen to relocate closer to the sea. She likes sea swimming. She's very, very keen to, you know, stretch her legs a little bit. Because don't forget, while I'm sort of showboating around in Europe and doing hammers and things like that, my poor wife's stuck at home looking after the place, still doing her job, looking after the dogs and the and, and so on. So I've got to consider all the options. And one of those has got to be, you know, a fair share to Judith. 
I'd love, if possible, to be able to get her out to come to Hammers one year, because again, trip around the world is, you know, is, a, is, a, is something you, everyone wants to do. Uh, and I do feel very privileged that my wife's allowed me to do this, uh, and very self, selflessly, you know, we've got to consider. So, in short, the future I think is probably going to be winding down the business, concentrating on probably having a bit more us time, whilst still doing as much as I can where possible for Ultra Four and Ultra Four Europe. I think that's probably the fairest thing to say. If you were, if you wind down the sheep farm, what happens to Flossie the sheep? <laughs> well, she holds a special place in my heart, as I'm sure JT's told you. Um, she she won't go to market, unfortunately. She'll probably become just one of the pet lambs, and maybe we'll just buy a smaller farm and put Flossie on the farm. You know, JT asked me to make sure I confirmed with you that was was Flossie traveling with you uh, on your trips, and and JT says she is a travel sheep. Wait till I see him. Oh, it's a good joke, right? I, I love it. So these guys, these guys give uh, give Chris such a hard time, you know, r- ribbing him about uh, the job he does. You know, they've got some nicknames for him. You can imagine being a sheep, a sheep farmer, and then they've uh, they've named a, a sheep Flossie and uh, give him a hard time about all the. You know, there's a ton of sheep jokes. Everyone, you know, fill in the blank, but. They've been uh, they've been thrown at Chris Bowler here. He's there's not a sheep joke out there that he hasn't heard. I believe at this point. Yeah, we've seen most of them. Well, Chris, I don't have anything else today. I we covered every base that I had on my list that I wanted to talk to you about, and everything, every question I had in my head about who runs Ultra Four and how in Europe, and how did Ultra Four in Europe get to be where it is today, and big as it is today, and the teams involved, and the answers always came back is you need to talk to Chris Bowler, you need to talk to Chris Bowler. So thank you, thank you for coming on. Hey, that's absolutely my pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, you know, it's been a really cool uh, interview. And as I say, you know, thank you very much indeed. I really appreciate that. Well, I'll see you in February. Hey, for sure. For sure. I'm going to go and have a beer now. But as I say, thank you very much indeed. And we will definitely meet up in Feb. Chris, thank you. Thank you for coming on. You made it. Another episode consumed. If you like the listen, please go give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcast and consider writing a quick review either there or over on the Facebook page. Thank you for tuning in to this wild dive into the talent tank. Wyatt, out. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the talent tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the talent tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.